Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Stella Lee about her article, Relationship Between Social Economic Status, Exposure to Airborne Pollutants, and Chronic Rhinosinusitis Disease Severity. Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I've invited Dr. Stella Lee, who was at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, but now serves as the section chief of rhinology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and faculty of Harvard Medical School. I'm looking forward to our discussion on her paper that is currently in early view entitled Relationship Between Socioeconomic Status, Exposure to Airborne Pollutants, and Chronic Rhinosinusitis Disease Severity. Hi, Stella. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to discuss this topic. Absolutely. Are you settling in there in Boston? Yes, it's wonderful. And the leaves are changing. It's fall. And of course, I'm always thinking about air quality. And I check that every day, not (laughs) only here, but I also check it in Pittsburgh and other places like Los Angeles. And I don't think I check in Texas yet, but maybe I should. Yeah, you definitely should in Texas. Well, thanks for your time today. And that's a great segue into um, what we're going to be talking about in your paper. So I understand that you've had this really long interest in, you know, looking at air quality and effects on upper respiratory inflammation. In fact, this is a follow-up on a prior podcast that you did with Dr. Tim Smith. You know, help me understand, this study seems to build on this continued evaluation of this cohort of 230 for chronic rhinosinusitis patients, or I guess general patients. Do I have that correct? And and remind us what prompted your interest in this general area. Sure. I think as otolaryngologists, oftentimes we are inspired by our patients to ask those relevant questions because we see these diseases. And sometimes we don't know what causes the disease because perhaps the allergy testing is negative. You know, we see polyps, but it's still a little bit unclear. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many factors that could contribute to chronic inflammation, but I was seeing associations, uh, especially living in Pittsburgh. I had a lot of patients who worked in Coke factories and steel mills, actually, which still Mm -hmm. exist in that area. Um, Occupations that were exposing them to fine particulate matter And fracking is a a big industry also in that area. Uh And this was happening in um, a a very substantial cohort of my patients. So I I really wanted to understand, gosh, is there an environmental component to how the disease outcomes and the disease manifestations are occurring in, in my patients? And how could I mitigate this somehow eventually, but I I really first wanted to understand if there was an association, if at all. And so that's how this uh, study began. So, and who are these uh, 234 patients? I mean, it seems like it's that same number, at least like three of your paper. Is, Is it the same cohort of patients? And is there something specifically interesting about that group? Sure. I think whenever you're looking at a study, it's really important to understand which patient population you're studying. And these are patients that were in my practice and they weren't specifically selected by occupation or by socioeconomic status. These were patients that we knew they had a stable zip code, that Mm. they had lived in a particular place for at least five years. And thankfully in Pittsburgh, a lot of people actually stay in Pittsburgh. They don't actually move around a lot. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. 
we wanted to make sure there was a, a patient population that hadn't been moving quite a bit, had been exposed to that environment for at least a, a period of time that we could make some conclusions from their home environment. And then also we had looked at their occupation, but that was another study that we had done. And then this study, we were really particularly interested in socioeconomic status. So did all of these patients, were they when they were included, they all had chronic rhinosinusitis? Because I also saw that you looked at allergic rhinitis and non-allergic rhinitis. And I guess who were yeah. all these patients? <laughs> yes. Yes. So all of these patients had CRS, either CRS with nasal polyps or CRS without nasal polyps. That is a limitation of the study. And that's hopefully where we want to look further into the future. And we're talking with other academic institutions of how we can really get control populations too, because this is within the patients with disease. Got it. um, And with CRS only. Got it. And so Since you've done a couple of different avenues of evaluation, what are some of the conclusions, just so to give us some deeper context of this patient population, especially as we look into, for this paper, their social economic status and their severity of their chronic rhinosinusitis, what are some of the, I guess, the summaries of the prior publications or observations in this cohort that may be important for this paper? We did see an association that patients with higher levels of exposure. I guess one of the really interesting findings from a prior publication in studying our CRS patients, and especially in our CRS patients without nasal polyps, that there was a 1.89 fold increased risk of needing sinus surgery Mm -hmm. with each unit increase in exposure to PM 2.5. And PM 2.5 is a a fine um, inhalant particle. It measures less than or equal to 2.5 microliters in diameter. And just to give you perspective, that's like about 30 fold smaller than an average human hair. So it's pretty, pretty small. And it also can lodge deep into the lungs. We know there's not much information on how this can impact upper airway inflammation. Got it. And so actually that uh, giving us the description on PM 2.5, is it is something else I would like to kind of build on. So you mentioned kind of three air pollutants in this particular paper, PM 2.5. You also talked about two others, black carbon and I think uh, nitric dioxide. Tell me a little bit about what are those things and what are like natural environmental sources (laughs) of those pollutants? The EPA really identifies six criteria pollutants That includes lead, ozone, sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, PM, as we talked about, 2.5 and PM10, which is a bigger particle, and nitrogen dioxide. But um, there are other nitrogen products. And so instead of NO2, uh, sometimes we think of as NOx because uh, there are multiple forms of it. Black carbon is a, a huge component of PM. So if you think about the combustion of like fossil fuels, biofuels, you know, living next to a very busy highway, that is, might be a a big source of exposure to black carbon. These are environmental pollutants that are in in the air and uh, can directly cause significant morbidity and mortality. We know that air pollution is one of the biggest causes of mortality in the world. So 
I think what I'm hearing is that at least obviously by the name pollutants, these are things that we as man have introduced into the environment that that should not be there. I, I guess what I'm hearing is that a lot of our cars, I guess oil, I guess anything that utilizes fossil fuels, it would coal also be another source of Yes. Of, okay. All right. Exactly. Well that it, that's exactly. helpful to to kind of figure out like what it is that um, that these things are. Um, and another thing just to kind of keep in mind when you're trying to think about particulate matter, you know, especially now in the COVID era, uh, people are talking about aerosolized particles. So PM, particulate matter 2.5 would kind of be in that aerosolized size, so like the, the viruses size or around that that size. So it's it's small matter that's in the environment that, that yeah. we breathe in all the time. Yeah. And that's also, um, and also just to add to that, it's not just particles, but we should also be thinking about vapors, mm. dust, gases, fumes, mists of different kinds, but volatile organic compounds. If you think of off-gassing of, you know, if you put in hardwood floors and they're off-gassing all these oh. chemicals, we don't really understand some of, of how those exposures can um, affect human health. You know, our noses are a first-line defense in a first-line area of exposure to these types of um, compounds, and we don't really understand how it can impair the barrier function. There's some exciting work being done at Hopkins as well. We've been Mm -hmm. doing some collaborative work with Dr. Uh, Ramanathan, as well as with Dr. Mahdi, who was one of my residents and also did a fellowship and had an neck surgery. But we we're all very interested in working together to kind of understand at the molecular level, at looking at inflammatory cytokines and, and how um, we can maybe develop even better animal models that recapitulate human disease. Um, yeah, I actually, Dr. Uh, Ramanathan Murray over at Hopkins has a mouse model where he did exactly what you were suggesting, right? He uh, introduced these mice to various different particulates and then looked at their sinonasal epithelial barrier and immune response. So yeah, well, that would be a great collaboration uh, to come exactly. together on all of that. Yeah, super exciting. Well, excellent. So Going into this paper, you talk about social economic status and you use something called an area deprivation index and give us a little bit of background on that so that we can better interpret your study. So the area deprivation index or what we call ADI, it's a measure of neighborhood disadvantage. It was created by the U.S. government over two decades ago from uh, census data, but it really has been updated quite a bit. The ADI really has been refined um, to something called the census block group, so at the neighborhood level and updated by different data sources. And so Mm -hmm. it allows us to look at neighborhoods and rank them by socioeconomic disadvantage at the state level or the national level and includes factors for income, education, employment, and housing quality. And so the ADI is a great tool for that. It's been used by, for example, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as well. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. as It'd be great to have more granular information because it's more looking at the broader uh, scope and looking at zip codes may not be the best way. That's what we, we thought might be a maybe a, at least a proxy, um, you know, metric. So you mapped your patients, the the two hundred thirty four patients, based on their zip code to one of these index numbers to give them an ADI associated with that particular patient. 
correct? Exactly. Okay. And then you also had a way of, as a biomarker, let's say, of exposure to these various different pollutants, the three that you focused on in this paper. How are those measured? That's a great question. You know, obviously we're, I'm an otolaryngologist. I don't have expertise in that area. So we really had a great collaboration with Dr. Albert Presto, who is at the Center for Atmospheric Particle Studies at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And then also with Bob Boudreau, who did a lot of the statistics for us. But really, it it is a field of its own to uh, do these measurements. And CMU has a great program. They they, um, gave us at Carnegie Mellon University. Oh, got it. And they measured the pollutant concentrations at at 70 different sites in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. And it's important to do this in a seasonal manner, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So they did uh, measurements in three periods, in both summer and winter, and different times of the days, which is great. They also ensured that they visited each site six times with each site visit lasting about an hour. With that data, they're able to create something called a land use regression model using different geospatial analysis. Uh, And I won't pretend to really um, know all the specifics about this, but they were able to then uh, map it and then correlate it with the information that we provided, including the actual addresses of patients. And we did get IRB approval to do this in Pittsburgh. And I'm working on something similar in Boston. We need to make sure that we protect patient confidentiality and make sure it's completely safe from a HIPAA standpoint. So were these measurements like a one-time thing at one point in time, and then they've used models to sort of model it out and, and bring it to real time? Or was it done specifically for this study? And then they keep repeating these readings and they update them. Yeah, that's a great question. They do these measurements anyway. They didn't do it particularly for us. They already had this data. So that's something to think about. There's publicly available data, uh, as well as I'm sure data like this. So those collaborations are really important. And I think, at least for me, it's, it's very fun and interesting because I can learn about something completely different, but but at least relevant to mm-hmm. our field and um, to our patients. Because I think we need to really think a little differently about how we study Sierra sometimes. And I think yeah. based on the associations that we're seeing in patient disease, and, and that's what I was seeing in Pittsburgh. And so I thought that this would be an interesting way to look at the question. Well, so, but, but just going back to, because they're in figure six, you go over like steroid dose and dosage. And relative to those exposure readings and the time frame in which you determine, you know, how much steroids that they were getting, how did they correlate? Was there a correlation? Meaning were these exposure readings 10 years ago, and then you had to model that exposure to your patient? I mean, was it done in the time, same time frame as, as yes. what you were recording for steroids? I guess that's what I'm ultimately trying to ask. Yes, um, that that's an important point that the exposure time period and the measurements of the the metadata, you know, the outcome measures have to be at the same time. So, okay. uh, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be as relevant. So, yes, we did find that the steroid use, especially for patients at higher ADF, 
ADI. Um, yes. <laughs> that ADI uh, was a predictor for increased steroid dosage in patients with chronic rhinosinusitis nasal polyps, but also in patients without nasal polyps mm-hmm. too. But again, our sample size is quite small and that's why we need to work with big data and very exciting because uh, Dr. Francesca Dominici, who is here at Harvard School of Public Health, we're working with her to access the big data and also with Johns Hopkins at Bloomberg, hopefully to really look at the data in a much bigger scale. Right. And then the other question I had is, you know, you looked at steroids, but did you also incorporate surgery. Obviously when patients have flare-ups, they either get steroids or surgery. And it, is it possible that the data reflects just limited access to surgery rather than necessarily exposure or other, you know, biomarkers? So we're able to look at like um, incorporate steroid as well as, you know, surgery to see whether or not you had more exacerbations associated with the ADI. That's a really important point because the need for surgery, I think, is a you know important potential surrogate marker of disease severity, and we did see that in our prior okay. publication. In this study, the main statistically significant outcomes were mainly steroid use. So, I think that should be studied in further detail with mm-hmm. a higher number of patients. But you're absolutely right that we do need to look at other outcomes, not just steroid use, but much more relevant outcomes. To your point, as we were talking, the whole socioeconomic status and how that impacts um, not only management, but disease presentation, and then ultimately burden on our healthcare. Like, why should we care? I mean, we should care because we're humans, but also and the big scale of, for our society, it just adds a huge cost that may be easily mitigated by some policy changes, right? Understanding that maybe if we just intervene sooner or and understood some of these uh, factors that go into the disease that we're treating um, can be really important in, a, in addition to, you know, like, you know, our typical trying to understand new therapeutics and techniques on surgery. Yes, you're absolutely right. And the term social determinants of health, I really did not understand what that meant until more recently in doing more of these studies. And my rhinology partner here at Brigham Women's Hospital, Dr. Regan Bergmark, is a very experienced and huge proponent of studying this further. And reading more about it, you realize that the social determinants of health, which are defined as demographic and social factors that underlie illness, access to medical care, adherence to treatment plans, outcomes, access, all those things. Mm -hmm. It really impacts every part of the overall care of the patient. And it can be even more important than just prescribing medications or doing surgery. We can do the most elegant and perfect sinus surgery or provide, let's say, the more advanced medicines that we've developed more recently. But if we don't really pay attention to those social and demographic factors, such as poverty, education status, ethnicity, gender, even uh, insurance status, these factors hugely impact the development and progression of illness, the ability to continue within our healthcare system, and also the healthcare outcomes. So 
I think you're, you're right. As human beings, it's just a moral obligation to our patients. But also financially, it does really affect the bottom line too, because it is very costly. I think as a society, we really focus on not being as proactive, but more retroactive or reactionary to disorders and diseases when perhaps more preventative care and understanding what those social determinants of health or other public health or environmental factors could be contributing and could potentially really impact the patient outcome. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, you know, obviously your study is one aspect of looking into this, but I I think that the social economic status of patients, these, you know, determinants of health, social determinants of health are going to be extremely important and even more so going forward as we as a society are dealing more with these chronic diseases, right? Rather than infections used to be the biggest threat to mankind, but we we have a better handle on infections and even cancer, and it's going to be managing these chronic diseases. And if we don't think about these other factors, you know, it's easy for us to say, okay, I'll follow after your sinus surgery, follow up in two weeks so that we can monitor how well it's healing. Well, if the patient has no access to transportation, that follow-up is not going to happen, right? So they were maybe able to strike a deal with their neighbor to take them to surgery, but how do you get them to come in on a regular basis so that you can monitor things? And if we don't start thinking about these, we're just spinning our wheels in terms of uh, managing these diseases. I, I commend you on starting to um, addressing these issues, I think we will be facing more and more and thinking about more and more as just physicians taking care of these patients. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up because as otolaryngologists, we really are in a very unique position, right? Because we care for very uh, common diseases and we can be the leaders in really identifying and helping to improve these disparities. And this is not just rhinosinusitis, but sleep apnea, mm-hmm. cancer, all those things. We really can make a huge impact as otolaryngologists. But first starts with just educating ourselves and really understanding what even social determinants of health are and getting to know our patients in much more detail. And I think as human beings, you know, and I, and I think that sounds so cliche, but I, and Dr. Ferguson, I think she really inspired me in this way. And it, it's really... I think helped me be a better physician because whenever I meet a patient, I really ask them, you know, what do you do for a living? Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't say it that way, but maybe approach it as I'm curious, are you exposed to any dust chemicals, fumes in your, in your environment? And I've obtained so much valuable information that can impact that patient's health. I know it's tempting because we have so we have so little time and a lot of patients to care for, but if we get to know our patients, get to know them a little bit better as far as their environment, as far as their occupation, about their social status or mm-hmm. their hardships that they're undergoing, I think it'll be so much better for not only the patients, but also as a And I think, why do we go into medicine too? It helps us as physicians to make this so much a more rewarding process. And this is not just within our field, but I think globally. Absolutely. I mean, that's great. I mean, I think not only to the satisfaction, like you said, as, as being a physician, but it's clearly coming down in terms of what we as a society is starting to focus on just by our sheer, the way that EMR 
payments are coming, right? So that's one access of, you know, uh, when you, you're rating your E&M visit, if you talk about, you know, some of the social determinants of health, it changes it, you know, to a different level than, you know, not discussing it. So it, clearly we are starting to, as a society, think about it from the bigger socioeconomic impact that these things can have on healthcare. Outcome measures are rapidly changing. There's perhaps mobile applications that make it easier for doctors and patients to track overall health status and the risk factors. So I think um, this is coming in the future and there'll be cloud-based data. How do we identify patient behavior? How do we use that data to help us be better doctors and also educate our patients too and right. um, look at those disparities in a little bit more granular level? Well, Stella, thank you again. Congratulations on some great work and very excited that you're continue to build on this whole concept of environmental exposures and how that impacts our patients and the diseases that we take care of. It's a very obviously a, a big uh, question and looking forward to some future studies from you and future collaborations that you guys have built and kind of looking at the full picture right now, you've looked at the environment and it's impact and correlations and collaborating with other colleagues to really translate that into its direct impact on disease on a molecular level and so forth. I think it's going to be great for our our society and physicians taking care of patients with upper inflammatory disease. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Amber. Thank you for letting me share some of this work we've been doing and hopefully we can continue to make progress in this area. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this topic. Great. Thank you. And good luck in Boston. Um, Thank and, you. Uh, and talk to you soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Myology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.